There's a lot of outrage in this country right now aimed at white people over systemic racism that's said to be deeply ingrained in our culture. Unfortunately, this rhetoric has gained a lot of momentum lately off the back of Black Lives Matter, which is nothing more than anarchy, poorly disguised as civil rights. Most of the outrage in this country is fueled by opportunistic politicians, and then the fires are fanned by deeply unethical factions of our media. On Australia Day, the news is dominated by images of protesters demanding that the date of the national holiday be changed. But when it comes to other issues facing the Indigenous communities, like poverty, violence, child abuse and squalid living conditions, the aforementioned champions of racial equality are nowhere to be seen. One of the most heart-wrenching issues facing Aboriginal families and communities is the rise of youth suicide. Aboriginal Australians as young as 11 are taking their own lives. And the lack of attention and focus from politicians who claim to care deeply about the Indigenous communities is a national disgrace. Anthony Dillon is an Indigenous affairs commentator and an academic. Today, Anthony released a paper titled Indigenous Suicide, Finding a Catalyst for Action. And he joined me on the show earlier for an interview. Anthony, thanks for coming on the program. Thank you, Nick. This is a big issue, isn't it? Uh, absolutely. As indeed, you know, anything Indigenous, I think, is a, a big issue. Um, in some parts of it, it's, it's made out to be a bigger issue than what it is. And in other parts, it's not given the attention it's needed. When you say that it's not given the attention it's needed, can you elaborate on that a bit, please? Yeah. Well, I mean, you spoke about Australia Day and that sort of thing. That that gets a lot of energy, a lot of attention. Yet when it comes to talking about some of the elephants in the room, um, you know, dysfunctional communities, okay, the problems you have in communities where, um, you know, high rates of violence and child abuse, but just missing out on essentials like fresh food and that sort of thing, doesn't seem to gather much attention. Um, and, you know, something that has you know stolen so much energy, sucked up so much energy, is the whole deaths in custody issue, which, mm. you know, the, you mentioned the media, but they have been atrocious in their portrayal of that. Um, so, you know, those sorts of things. We should be focusing on, um, you know, the things which aren't spoken about generally. Like I said, you know, community dysfunction, and that links into the suicide. So if we get, you know, communities right, um, jobs, education, fresh food and vegetables, and, you know, fresh water, all that sort of thing, the suicide will largely be taken care of. What's the sentiment in the uh, Indigenous communities about the death, the media portrayal of death in custody and the Australia Day date change? Well, if you go out to a remote community, uh, things like Australia Day, the, the controversy in the city for many of these people in remote communities, they either know, they either don't know or don't care about the controversy in the cities. Uh, many of them will, will have a fun Australia Day celebration or, you know, won't do anything at all. So it's you know, all the controversies, the, um, you know, celebration of genocide, apparently, mm. is really a, a non-issue in many remote communities. It's only the, the um, fairer-skinned city cousins who make a big deal about this. It is. It's, uh, ironically, it, it typically is, in my 
opinion white people that you know white academics people that have a, a political agenda um that are perhaps using the indigenous people for their own agenda uh absolutely you know they, they wish to be the saviors um the defenders um of aboriginal people against a supposedly you know systemic racism that's sweeping the country or at least sweeping aboriginal communities um it's, it's just nonsense certainly um what happens is you know that, that propaganda is pumped out um you know you have a, a a death in custody and you get someone like lydia out there who just oh this is genocide we can't go on how can we go on yet there's silence about the aboriginal people who die in their own communities under appalling conditions nothing gets said about that um, but anyway, once you plant the idea in someone's mind that um, there's systemic racism against Aboriginal people, once they have that idea, then it's very easy, you know, for the confirmation bias to kick in mm. and any story can be made as evidence for it. Uh, you know, classic is, you know, each time they mention the number of Aboriginal deaths in custody since uh, the Royal Commission, um, you know, it's 400, about 470 now. I think 432 used to be the magic number. It's about 470. Uh, that always gets mentioned, but never or rarely is there a mention of the number of non-Aboriginal people mm. who died in custody during the same time period. And, you know, could you imagine if um, whenever there was a death in, say, hospital, the only time it was reported was, say, for males? There was silence about females, you know, dying in hospital. There's only ever stories about males dying in hospital that were reported. You'd think that hospitals were a place for killing men. That's right. Does that analogy make sense? Absolutely. It's selective. I mean, it's selective practices of media. Oh, exactly. And, you know, so it's, it's a lie by omission. You know, you leave out a certain bit and you paint a completely different picture. And this is essentially, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is essentially what's happening uh, in, in the United States as well. Um, you know, the FBI provides public data on the number yeah. of African-Americans who are, are killed by police, yet you interview, you interview some of these activists at protests and they believe it's in the order of thousands, yet it's actually, yeah. it was 13, I think, in that year. So it's a dominant narrative and it's hard for me to know whether it is just a, an unethical media writing the back of this or it's a number of things. Look, a, a good friend of mine, um, I'll say his name, uh, the um, former minister in the Keating government, I think, Gary John, said to me, newspapers are in the business of selling newspapers. And, you know, first and foremost, and, there's, you know, there's some good media outlets out there, but, you know, the bottom line is that they're in the business of selling newspapers and, you know, whatever sells and whatever bleeds, leads. That's right. And unfortunately, uh, tragedy sells. But let's move on to this paper. Uh, yeah. Talk me through what you've found, what this paper demonstrates and some of the key key issues that we should pay attention to here? Okay. Um, well, again, yes, 
the rates of suicide amongst Indigenous people are elevated um, compared to, you know, far above the uh, rate in the general population. And of course, you know, for some people, they see that as evidence of systemic racism, and it shouldn't be. Certainly problems there to be fixed. Um, so, you know, we in remote communities, for example, we know that sexual abuse is a contributor to suicide. Uh, we know that school attendance is associated with suicide. And that's not to say, and I made this clear in the paper, that's not to say government don't have a part to play. They do have an important part to play. And I think in some areas they could possibly be a bit tougher than what they are. But people also have a part to play. Um, there needs People need to have this preparedness, preparedness for embracing solutions that will lead to um, reducing the rate of suicide. And in a nutshell, you know, uh, suicide is the end result most often of a state of hopelessness and helplessness. Uh, so when people are feeling hopeless and helpless, suicide is can be a very attractive option. And I guess the other main point I want to make in that paper was I spoke about a, a strengths-based approach. And by that I mean is essentially well, two things. Um, the dynamics of suicide are the same as what they are for Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people. So you, you get, you know, a couple of thousand non-Aboriginal people um, in a remote community where jobs are scarce, you turn in school, um, throw on a bit of alcohol, that sort of thing, you're going to have similar sorts of problems. So the dynamics are the same. And basically... By strengths based, I mean is once I mean once conditions are right, you know, people mm. are, in, are in thriving environments, there's jobs, adults are working, kids are in school, then the people thrive. Suicide becomes, you know, will be greatly reduced. So it's not as if indigenous people are inherently dysfunctional, it's just a matter of getting conditions right, and they they will thrive just like any other uh, ethnic group. Absolutely, and it seems to paint that to paint this as um, a cultural problem rather than a problem um, based on the evidence that you've just provided. Yes. Suicide affects um, all human beings and the motivations are similar. To, to, to convince some of these people that it is a cultural problem could have quite detrimental effects on getting the help that they need. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, also once you get the message that you are, you're part of a group, Aboriginal people, and you suffer this systemic oppression and also you're a victim of colonisation and transgenerational trauma, uh, what does that do for your motivation? You think the odds are stacked against you and you think, oh, well, what's the use? Uh, so those messages are, are very poisonous. Um, and just coming back to the you know, whole colonisation one, yes, colonisation happened, no denial of that, but it's, it's not the big factor, not by a long shot, that's impacting on Aboriginal people today. We are never victims of the past, but only ever victims of our view of the past. Mm. As indeed many thriving Indigenous people are showing, including those Indigenous people who oppose me greatly, uh, you know, oppose uh, like-minded people people like me greatly. I don't need to, don't need to name them, but um, many of them have 
um, senior positions in government, academia, they've done very, very well. You know, they seem to have escaped um, the colonisation trap. That's right. Which means that it's, of course, possible and, of course, attainable. And what's making it unattainable is is the rhetoric and indoctrination, and we're seeing that now through this proposed um, curriculum, which is quite alarming. Yeah. But, you know, it just perpetuates the myths. I just don't think either that I, I read that, you know, they're teaching... I could be wrong on the year here, but I think it's around year four. They're teaching uh, theories, right, on colonisation and on, and that's fine to teach people. But at in year four, mm. or even year seven, I, I think that this is going to further this this problem. Um, so I guess my question on the back of that is. How can we start to introduce some of the great offerings from Indigenous writers, scholars, artists into the mainstream curriculum rather than this garbage that's teaching kids that current white Australians were on the boats? Yeah. Uh, Well, I think one way is there's so many successful Indigenous, and like I said, the ones, even those who oppose me, um, I take my hat off to them. They're, they're successful. And, and for that, I, I respect and admire them, even though we're kind of ideologically opposed on many things. And you have many Indigenous leaders, and, and by leaders, I mean those who are doing very, very well in their field, mm. whether it be politics, sports, entertainment, um, art, whatever, and so we should be showcasing them. Um, just let young people know that, hey, there's many Indigenous people who are doing very, very well for themselves. And, uh, you know, two examples that come to mind very quickly. Best Price in the Northern Territory, mm-hmm. and she was a minister for Northern Ter- the Northern Territorians. And notice I said the Northern Territorians, even though I stumbled over it, she wasn't just a minister for Aboriginal people in the Northern Territory. Mm. Uh, That's she, right. He had a portfolio that was responsible for Indigenous and non-Indigenous uh, people. Um, so, you know, it's it's pretty hard to get more mainstream. It is. And she's respected um, as her, not as an Aboriginal, not as a woman. She's respected for her. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, she, she, you know, you can't get more simple than that. She was there for, you know, all the people in the Northern Territory. Um, the other example that comes to mind is my father, Australia's first Aboriginal peace officer. Okay. okay. Wow. And that, that, the bit about being the highest ranking or first Aboriginal police officer, that was, you know, that sort of come into play in the latter part of his life. Mm. Okay? Um, so for the, bulk of his uh, career starting from day one uh he was just a police officer just a hard-working police officer who and if you follow his story um went on to do great things within the queensland police force 
uh, you know, overturned corruption. And that was done as a police officer, not as an Aboriginal police officer. That's right. So, you know, there's, there's, there's just two examples. There's certainly the, the first two that come to mind, and there's many others. So, you know, just letting kids in schools, especially, you know, in these remote, remote communities or urban settings where there's a high proportion of Indigenous kids, just letting them know that there are many successful Indigenous people in most fields. And also in the same with, with any culture is that success doesn't necessarily equate to being a superstar in something either. Yeah, no, good point. Uh, and that's something I've written about before. I also like to think about, well, first of all, it, it couldn't be summed up better than uh, my father for all his achievements. His heroes are his brothers and sisters and his uncles and aunties who don't have a high profile, but were just sort of hardworking, good, moral people. That's who he thinks that his heroes are. So, yeah. yes, there are a lot of fine, high-achieving Indigenous people who are just your neighbours, um, the guy down the street, who don't have this high, high profile, but they're the sort of people who make our communities and our nation a better place. Those good, down-to-earth Indigenous people who, who are your neighbours and work colleagues and that sort of thing, they're not out protesting. No, um, that's right. They're making, they're leading by example, and they're making a difference within their circle of influence. So how do we start to, to change the dialogue a little bit here from promoting oppression to pr promoting what we've just talked about? Oh, good question. Can we change the media? I don't think so. You know, that's really hard. Uh, the only way I can see it is for interviews like this. Um, so putting, you know, these sorts of stories out there as well, just to let other people know that, you know, for those who, who are searching for it, because normally it's fine interviews like this, you have to go searching for it. That's right. It's not going to be not going to be front front page news in the Sydney Morning Herald or on SBS or ABC or anything like that. So, you know, opportunities like this need to be kept going. Um, you know, Indigenous people who are making their mark need to be given support. Um, and, you know, people like Jacinta Price, Warren Mundine, uh, cop a lot of criticism, but they do get a lot of support. And it's only the support by the public that keeps them going. Um, so, you know, if in the social media where, you know, a lot of discussion takes place and where a lot of people get their news from, um, so when these people are criticised and called coconuts and Uncle Toms and sellouts and all that sort of thing, mm. for other people who do know the truth to support them, um, that's always good because it just lets the, the nasty voice know that there are competing opinions out there and they don't have a monopoly of it. On it, uh, and I suspect uh, it's the majority of people who care for and support the you know the good indigenous leaders. It's just I think that, so too. Uh, the ones who oppose them just seem to have the bigger platforms and the loudest voices, and they're able to piggyback on the, the back of these terrible stories about you know Aboriginal deaths in custody, where you know it's made out to be slaughterhouses you know for indigenous people yeah it's the again it's the young largely young white activists that are, are telling people like me that i'm on indigenous land you know oh you know 
Yeah, oh, not only are you on Indigenous land, you're on stolen land. Stolen lands, yeah. Paying the rent. I mean, every you know, that's another thing. You tell Indigenous people that uh, their land has been stolen and that they are owed rent, that's disempowering. It's, you know, because it paints them as a victim. That's and right. And it's extremely empowering because they think, oh, well, I'm suffering because my land is stolen. And, you know, and then the activists put out this ridiculous analogy of, you know, well, what if someone come into your place and threw you out and, you know, occupied the house? Not a really good comparison, okay? It's, not just, really not, it's just nonsense. Yeah, exactly. You know, we're talking about things, things that happened generations ago. But I think you're right. I think I think the majority of people are behind this idea. Uh, it's just that the the people that aren't the, the very very nasty people are the ones that are motivated to spend most of their time writing these sorts of comments on the internet. Absolutely. And look, ABC and SBS is a big platform, and I know in um, you know workplaces, I have people tell me all the time. They just say, look. They're just afraid to say certain things in the workplace or mm. you know, at their card game or whatever. Um, just for fear, you know, if there's 10 people there and you got two of them who are these hardcore, you know, what I call blacktivists, yes. they'll be shot down. And, you know, imagine if you're also a school kid and you've started to think for yourself or you've had parents who have fortunately made available to you different sources of information. If you're in the classroom and all your um, classmates are talking about how we should feel bad and feel guilty for mm. being white and what we've done to the poor Aboriginal person, and you want to say, actually, I don't buy that view, you're probably not going to say it because you know what will happen. Absolutely. You know? You might even... You know, survival instinct kicks in. Well, that's it. But it's it's the it's largely the same with a lot of these identity politics driven issues. People just they don't want to be screamed at. Yeah, and I had one friend, God bless her. She was telling me she did she went to some workshop and was told to apologise for her white privilege, and she refused to. She said, as a hardworking single mother who has been in abusive relationships. Um, she's definitely not privileged. So it's interesting that, uh, and I see so much hypocrisy in the Aboriginal culture wars, and here's one, and we'll come back to the culture wars shortly, um, here's one. You get Aboriginal activists saying, you know, don't stereotype us, and yet they're probably the, the biggest perpetrators of stereotyping, um, stereotyping themselves, you know, we're hard done by and we're connected to the land and all that sort of thing. And stereotyping the non-Indigenous people, well, you're a people of privilege, you stole our land, blah, blah, blah. Mm. And there's a, you know, I, I give the story of, you know, people like my father and Best Price who had it hard growing up. There's plenty of white people in this country too who have had it hard growing oh, up. Absolutely. And their greatest strategies. And look, you, you find those great white people in this country and those great black people in this country, by great, you know, as we defined before, hardworking, good morals and that sort of thing, black ones and the white ones, they look at each other and they don't see colour. They just see, hey, brother, you, you've, you know, I know your struggle. Uh, we, you know, we grew up in similar situations. And for them, there's no identity politics. Um, 
other than the, the ones who like to perpetuate bad news mm. against those who like to just get on with life. Um, and can I continue talking? Because I, of course, you can. To be interviewed. I just I said I would come back to the culture wars. Yeah, go ahead. Um, That's what I was about to prompt you on, anyway. So, yeah, I, I should have the book around here somewhere. Uh, the cancel culture. Can I just grab it? Of course, you can. It's five seconds away. No problem. So Kevin Donnelly re- released this volume just a couple of weeks ago. Cancel culture and the left's long march. Yeah, and so there's a, you know it got a forward by Peter Credlin, uh, a yeah. woman I admire very very much. You, you got chapters in there by Jennifer Oriel, uh, Tony Abbott, um, Kevin Donnelly himself, and I've got a chapter on. Um, it's called, what did I call it? Uh, divided We Fall, which basically is, you know, that. Divided We Fall. Divided We Fall. Yeah. Divided We Fall, um, which is just, you know, the tension, the culture was uh, on the Aboriginal landscape. And what I say in that book is not as simple as Aboriginal versus non Aboriginal mm. people. That's not really the culture war because most Aboriginal people get on well with. Most of the non-Aboriginal people they meet, and most non-Aboriginal people who interact with Aboriginal people get on well. They, you know, they just get on so well. They don't see Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal. They just see fellow Australians. But there's that small minority who are so set on, you know, dividing Australia into Aboriginal victim, mm. the oppressed, and non-Aboriginal people, uh, the oppressor. And that's where the and, you know, we've. Yeah, we've spoken about that, you know, for the last half hour. That's really the nucleus of the problem. It's it. People use the term cultural Marxism, but I mean, you know, I think actually Karl Marx would probably be rolling in his grave as bad as he was in terms of being an economic Marxist. But the same idea is there in terms of. As opposed to say Marx, who wanted to rise, wanted people to rise above um, the economic oppressions, right? So it was all about economic oppression, but still about the individual. But now all the problems of economy and and affluence have been solved. So the oppression now is on the individual. So now it's a whole series of identities that they want to believe are oppressed, whether it's gay. Lesbian, LGBT, black, uh, everything. So now we're seeing the rise of victimhood culture. So it's very easy to fuel this particular fire, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the role of victim, or more correctly, what I say, counterfeit victim, as opposed to the genuine victim, because yeah. we do have genuine victims out there in both the Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal communities, and they're the ones we should be focusing on. But for the counterfeit victim, there's there's a lot of power in playing the victim role. Um, you know, you get a lot of attention, you get apologies, you get people um, feeling and you, guilty, and you fit in. Yeah, absolutely, and you you become revered, you become so adored. Oh, you know, this poor person, blah blah blah. But it's a house no built on sorry, it's a house built yeah. on sand, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, to continue the house analogy, I often quote from the good book, where it says, a house divided against itself cannot stand. 
and you know currently Australia is a um, not completely divided, but there's certainly enough divisions there that are holding Australia back from being the best that it can be. And holding Aboriginal people back from being the best that they can be too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's so many of them that, that would be doing so much better if they weren't given this misery story that you are a victim of the past uh, as well as a victim of the racist present. Um, you know, just very quickly on racism, um, I'll mention it quickly because I don't want to give it too much space. Is racism real? Yes. Does it happen? Yes, but nowhere near to the um, amount of times that um, many would have you believe. And I always think in a lot of things, when trying to understand a problem or a crisis, we need, we need to look at rates. You need a numerator and a denominator. Okay, so for people who have forgotten their fractions, the number on the top, number on the bottom, percentages, if you like. So, for example, if I tell you, you know, let's suppose there's, I don't know, 30 shark attacks a year in Australia, that doesn't tell you much unless you know how many people go to the beach each year. That's right. Uh, and so it is with events of racism. Let's talk about genuine racism for the moment, not this sort of fake, phony, confected mm. Racism, like coon cheese or something like that. Um, yes, let's let's look at those those real cases and let's stamp them out. But let's keep in mind um, that when you look at all the interactions between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, that those ones where there's uh, true racism only form a very very minute minority of all the interactions. Does that make sense? It does, and not only that, we we stamp it out, and that's yeah, that, that exactly. Really, that really gives insight into our culture that we actually don't tolerate that. What what happened, you know, with the colonisers was hor horrific, but we our culture made sure that that didn't happen again, yeah. and we'll continue to do that. And you know, I do not know any person in my circle who would tolerate a genuine case of racism against Aboriginal people or any other ethnic group for that matter. Of course. Um, you know, it, we're not a racist country. And I said, I tweeted this last night. I know many Indigenous people um, who earn more than me. Anyway, uh, they're on a good income, good on them. Now, it would be silly to say, therefore, Aboriginal people are a rich yes. um, ethnic group. I mean, that, that's silly. But they're, you know, some members of the Blacktivist group, very happy to say, you know, based on a few isolated incidents of racism in Australia, that means Australia is a racist country. You know, that, that's, that's not a generalisation. It's nonsense. Again. Just like it'd be absolutely silly for me to say, well, based on the wealthy Indigenous people I know, Indigenous people are a very wealthy uh, race of people. No, they're not, because we know the story. We know that there's many who are um, not doing well, that are living in poverty. Um, so, you know, enough of the hi hypocrisy. A good point to end on. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, no, just that... Um, for the you know many good people out there, which is, is most people, 
um, who are, you know, standing right and are on top of these issues, you know, in the sense that they know, you know that Black Lives Matter and, and all that sort of nonsense is just complete nonsense. We thank you for your support. Um, you, you're doing a great job by being a voice out there. And, you know, I can understand times where you just got to be quiet and not say anything. Uh, that's wise, you know, again, the survival instinct kicks in. But uh, just the, the main points that I, um, like, if I could just read a couple of them from. Yes, please do. Just, so just in my summary there, um, I've said, okay, uh, so I think the solutions to, you know, the problems we face in this country with regard to the Aboriginal culture wars are recognise the commonalities between Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal people far outweigh the differences, okay? Um, Aboriginal people are people first, Aboriginal second. Um, embrace the idea that Aboriginal affairs is everyone's business, okay? So, so often the non-Aboriginal person wants to say something and an activist, you know, and often it's, you know, a person identifying as Aboriginal who looks about as Aboriginal as you tells them to shut up that they're not allowed to have their point of view. Now, if I could end on one point, it would be this. Aboriginal affairs is everyone's business. It is. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on the program, mate. You're a great bloke. Where can we find your work? Oh, thank, yeah, and thank you for mentioning that. So www.anthonydillon.com.au.au. And that's so, www. Yeah, Anthony Dillon, D I L O N, D I L O N. dot com. dot au. Thank you very much, Nick. It's been a pleasure uh, talking with you, and a, and an even greater pleasure talking for your audience. Thanks very much.